Hi, and welcome to another Cyber Podcast episode. I'm your host, Christoph Limpler. And in this episode, Chad Crowell joins us to talk about DevOps and Kubernetes. Now, Chad and I used to be co-workers at a company called Linux Academy, and today he is the director of IT for a company called SBS, which is an IT services provider. Chad has extensive experience as a DevOps engineer and working with cloud environments such as AWS and Azure. He's actually taught dozens of courses. And in fact, he's a Microsoft certified trainer, and he's also authored a book called Acing the Certified Kubernetes Administrator Exam. So in this episode, we're going to chat about DevOps, we're going to talk about containers, what Kubernetes is, security concerns to be aware of when using Kubernetes, and also how to prevent those security issues. So Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Christoph. It's good to be here and good to be connected with you again. It's been a while, so... Yeah, it's been too long. We were just chatting about that off script, but uh, hopefully we get to meet up at some point here. But let's start off easy with your background and talking about how you first got started in IT. Yeah, so I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, graduate in 2008 at the height of the financial crisis here in the US. And uh, so it was uh, not easy to, you know, be applying to jobs as a as a newly graduated person, but um, I was lucky enough to get a job at a small manufacturing company and I was just doing racking and stacking, cable management, uh, running cables, uh, you know, system admin stuff. So uh, a lot of resetting passwords, a lot of wiping systems of malware and uh, hardware replacement and stuff like that. So it started off um, really slow, but I think that gave me an opportunity to kind of feel out where I wanted to go. Cause as you probably know, uh, whoever's you, you, all of you that who are listening, you can go in many different directions in this industry. And it allowed me to you know, kind of put my feelers out there, see which direction I wanted to go. Uh, from there, it, it was kind of just, um, I, I realized that I wanted to be a sysadmin and operations guy. And I really liked the, aspects of setting things up, uh, connecting certain systems together. And so I continued that in my career on a more consultancy basis and kind of worked my way up to, uh, you know, working with larger and larger clients, uh, more more and more complex systems, and also getting to uh, kind of adapt with the times in terms of, you know, the change to virtualization uh, I do feel like I was pretty had pretty per- perfect timing in terms of catching that wave. Uh, I I I think there was only a couple years after 2008 where I started to hear about this thing called VMware and ESXi and and that carried me on through. I got really interested in that and very curious how that worked and almost immediately saw the business value and other businesses um, were seeing that value as well and kind of took off from there. And so if, if you kind of break it down in terms of the the roles that you held throughout those years and in, in figuring out that path, what were some of those roles that you held throughout your career leading up to this point? Yeah, so I, I realized early on that it was a good idea to specialize. You know, as I, as I said before, this industry is very, uh, very broad, right? So I could have gone in the security direction or the uh, operations direction or the developer direction. Um, it, it was it was really and, and a lot more, right? There's there's so many areas where you can specialize in. But the reason why I wanted to specialize was because I wanted to be you know kind of the go-to person 
that companies or people would rely on to do a specific thing. And in my case, I chose storage. And so on, on top of, you know, virtualization, uh, you know, and riding that wave, I chose storage in particular to specialize in just because I realized how storage was um, adapting and evolving. And I wanted to, you know, get involved with virtual SANS and, and, and so I specialized in storage specifically for those reasons. And then now you're also specializing a little bit, right, in terms of containers and Kubernetes technology, which is something that, that we'll talk quite a bit about in this episode. But how did you, moving from storage and also training, how did you end up realizing, you know what, Kubernetes and containers are an area that I definitely also want to focus on and specialize in? Yeah, I think after I decided to specialize in storage, how that led to DevOps was a rather interesting, I guess. Um, so through my kind of obsession or, uh, you know, uh, through the interest that I had at the time of productivity, productivity hacks, uh, you know, creating efficiencies, I, I've always seemed to operate with trying to work myself out of a job, you know, and in a lot of ways, just because I was never the kind of person who was comfortable with the monotony and doing things, doing repetitive tasks and, you know, doing things manually. So I was always interested in how can I be more efficient? How can I be more productive? How can I, how can I automate this so that I don't have to, you know, do this manual tasks over and over again, how can I do that so I can focus on these other things over here? Um, so in this case, I specialized in storage. I, you know, spent a period of six or seven years with just, you know, racking and stacking and uh, setting up these storage systems and, and in particular virtual storage with a company called NetApp. Um, so they have this product called E-Series uh, with Storage Grid. And that uh, product really introduced me to um, object storage and also treating storage as uh, a means to uh, as a means to provide uh, you know consistent access to that storage, but also um, you know looking at it through the developer lens, right? So it's more it's not so much you know here's a pool of storage. It's now you know here is a way to access disparate storage, like a data lake or something, and be able to access storage, access the storage in a more efficient way so that it's more uh, programmatic versus, you know, here's a pool of storage, you know, here's a disk, here's a, you know, flat, flat file uh, system, you know, here's how to access that. You know, it was more, I guess, strategic and, and uh, programmatic in, in that way. And through that, through that lens, I was able to, I think, recognize the benefits of DevOps uh, along that same vein, right? So there's DevOps, the DevOps model, you know, and the, the DevOps grassroots movement is all about breaking down barriers to create more efficient systems. And I think through my general interest of, you know, productivity and efficiency and automation, and also looking at the uh, the overall landscape and through kind of this programmatic lens, I think lent itself well to getting involved in DevOps. And so you mentioned that with DevOps, we're trying to break down those inefficiencies. Can you 
walk us through a little bit more because I'm I'm guessing here and I'd love to hear comments from people who are listening. If you're on the Discord channel, send me a message and, and let me know if I was right or wrong on this one. But I'm going to guess that most people who are listening right now, they've probably heard the term DevOps, but maybe they're not super familiar with what that actually means in practice, right? They wouldn't be able to say, oh yeah, here's here's what that looks like if I'm joining XYZ Corporation. Here's how we could implement DevOps. So if you had to explain it in practical terms, what would you say that DevOps actually is and or does for organization? Yeah. So DevOps is a grassroots grassroots movement. It's not a suite of tools. It's not a you know an organization or it's, or it's not a specific thing. It's it's a movement. And the reason why I make that differentiation is because it's it's all about the people. Uh, and in DevOps, we have this saying: it's you know people over processes. And the the people are are, are what makes and have have made DevOps so popular and all of the, all of the people involved in that movement have much like myself been interested in how do we make this system more efficient and the system being delivering software from when you're, you know, developing it on your local workstation all the way to develop, uh, uh, publishing that artifact and deploying to production. So DevOps, to put it very simply, is a streamlined way to make improvements or fixes to your application and have that be deployed all the way to production in in an automated fashion. So you're, uh, and, and in teams as well, right? So you you work for an organization, you have... 10, 20 team members, you know, your, your main goal, if you're focusing on DevOps is to create that streamlined process from, you know, this person on this team makes a change. How does that change become implemented and integrated into this bigger system, whatever software you're creating, and then delivering that to uh, production, the, the production environment or wherever you're running that. So your customers can access it or people can use it. And when I, when I was a, a developer, web developer and learning the tools of the trade, I had a hard time wrapping my head around what this actually meant because I'd never seen a development process and pipeline in a larger organization. And so when it was just me as a single contributor, I didn't really get why this was necessary, right? I would just write some pieces of code, some functionality, and then I would just deploy it to production once it looked good or good enough. And then as I started working in a, a development team that, was, that started growing and growing and you had more developers in there, you had more stakeholders, you had a product team, people saying, here's what our customers need and here's what it should look like. And, oh, we deployed something that breaked that or breaked that broke production <laughs> and that introduced some issues and the customers are not happy. And so now you have all these hands in the pot it becomes exponentially more complicated. You can't just act as an individual contributor that pushes code through. You now have to have a process. You have to have a pipeline where your code gets reviewed by a peer. It gets reviewed by automation to make sure that you're not releasing a vulnerability in the production environment. And also it gets reviewed by the people who are acting on behalf of the customer to make sure that you actually developed what the customer wants at the end of the day. And so when once you add all that complexity, to, to, to your point, Chad, you have to have, you do have to have some tooling, but I think a lot of people 
they hear DevOps and they go, okay, well, let's go ahead and add these tools to the pipeline and we're good to go. When in reality, it starts from day one, it starts from the very beginning where everybody gets together and figures out, okay, how can we make this work in a better, more efficient way? And then of course, yes, you can add some tooling in there, including containers, which is gonna be our, our next point of conversation, right? You started specializing a little bit more in containers. So number one, can you walk us through what a container is and what the benefit of that is? And then of course, how that fits into the DevOps pipeline and how we can use containers to make deploying to production more efficient. Yeah, I think when you uh, hear the word DevOps, a lot of times you hear the word containers as well. And I think that that is so because containers are uh, a means to reproduce a a set of instructions for uh, a runtime. And let me back up and kind of explain why that is. So you know so you've probably heard the you know you've probably heard of docker right and docker has in a lot of ways made containers very um you know consumable and and accessible and and um uh, you know created this these repeatable patterns for how to create containers um long before that you know decades before even there was this uh terminology called jails and uh, jails is actually synonymous with the containers that we know today in that the processes on the Linux kernel, let's say, are uh, separated in what's called namespaces. So if you have uh, these processes that are isolated in this namespace, this uh, this grouping or this uh set of processes acts as its own its own operating system right so you have no visibility into uh what's what even though it's sharing the same kernel you you have no visibility into all of those uh those other processes that may be running on the same kernel so um if you can you know make a correlation there in the naming you know jails is you know this this idea that these uh, processes are isolated in a jail, you know, in a jail cell, <laughs> you know, and they're not able to uh, to see anything outside of that j- jail cell, and and they um, to the the processes inside of that jail cell, they they they're acting as their own independent uh, machines. So through the use of namespaces, uh, which is the the jail cell, and also uh, C groups, which is uh, the ability to put certain restrictions on that jail cell so that jail cell can only utilize, you know, a certain amount of uh, megabytes of memory and a certain number of CPUs, uh, you know, so you can restrict that jail cell to only, you know, use that amount of uh, resources from that, from that host. Um, and so once you, once you have that um, isolated kind of uh, jail cell or namespace, uh, that has these restrictions on it and which will allow you to not consume all of the resources that that host provides you know you you have a um a a thing that can that can run in a repeatable way um no matter where you place that jail cell so that jail cell can run in the same fashion on you know this machine 
versus running it over here on this machine or any infrastructure, um, whether it be cloud or bare metal or anywhere. So that's, I think, why, uh, you know, Docker and and the, this concept of a container container has been, become so popular is because you can you can run this this jail cell anywhere and, and it'll run in the same fashion so that that creates consistencies that are really attractive for a developer right we we eliminate the you know it it works on my machine sort of excuse when you're trying to run code on these many diff within these many different environments and on these many different machines that may contain, uh, you know, prerequisites for, you know, not only the prerequisite software that you have to run in order to run this, uh, but also, uh, the underlying infrastructure, you know, it being a certain vendor or a specific, uh, uh, type of infrastructure. So that's really, that's, that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's a repeatable thing that you can run anywhere. And it's, it's very attractive to, to be able to have that consistency. And also, um, you know, we have this concept in DevOps called, uh, cattle, not pets. And with these containers, you no longer have to, you know, maintain them, upgrade them, um, babysit them you know, treat them like pets, you can now just replace them and treat them more like cattle. So they become, <laughs> they, they become a way to, um, uh, easily, easily, easily replace versus having to maintain them over time. And again, from the perspective of web development, let's say, let's say Chad and I are working on an application together. As he was saying, it doesn't matter if we have completely different environments. So if I have, if I'm running Mac OS, he's running windows, Obviously, those are two completely separate systems. So if I start developing the application on macOS and I send it over to him and say, hey, take over and, and build your feature and functionality on this application that I developed, he'd have all kinds of problems. The dependencies wouldn't work because they're not the same or they're not installed the same way and so on and so forth. So it, he would get this pile of code and then he would have to spend hours, if not days, figuring out how to make it run on his own machine versus mm -hmm. if you're using containers then I can create the application within that container and it's self-contained. It has all the dependencies and everything within that self-contained environment. I send that over to him. He can just spin it up in seconds and it works. He doesn't have to install a gazillion dependencies. It just works the same way that it worked on my machine. And so then he can develop on that. And then bam, once he's developed his features and functionality and I've developed mine, we can smush them together. We can deploy that to production and it doesn't matter where production is running it will run the exact same way because it's in that self-contained container. So I, yeah, I think that was a great way of, of explaining that. I just kind of wanted to give a slightly different spin from the web development side of it. And so speaking of taking those containers and launching them into production, because you could have multiple different containers, I mean, depending on the size of the organization, you could literally have thousands or tens of thousands of these containers that are running in your cloud environments. Is that where Kubernetes or something like Kubernetes steps in and says, you know what, this is going to be super chaotic. You can't manage this unless you have something like Kubernetes. Is that what that's designed to do? Did I get that right? Yeah. So what I just described with treating containers as cattle, not pets, uh, in that, you know, in that same vein where containers are meant to be ephemeral, are meant to, to, to be killed and to be respawned. 
Kubernetes comes into the picture here because as you try to access these containers, um, as you can imagine, as they're killed and respawned, the attrib attributes of those containers change, right? So it's IP address, it's DNS name, et cetera. And also as your systems become more complex and like you said, Christoph, they, they multiply, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not always just one container, uh, that contains all of your code and you may have, uh, you know, the container that represents the front end and you may have, have a database container. You may have, um, middleware, you, you may have a lot of, you know, and, and that's kind of goes along the lines of microservices, right? You have a separate container that has, uh, that does one thing very well versus trying to shove everything into one container. So that's where Kubernetes comes into play and provides that kind of consistent way to access, um, we call them pods, uh, which are the element that houses the container and, uh, also allow it's a container orchestrator. So it allows those containers to, you know, spread in terms of, um, scaling horizontally or even scaling vertically. So, and so as, as Kubernetes gets used more and more, I'm assuming here that we're going to see, or have been seeing more and more people try to find security vulnerabilities and, or exploit those vulnerabilities. Do you have any tips or tricks or in regards to security concerns in dealing with Kubernetes? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, security concerns to consider here. Um, some of the more, more important ones are the, uh, it's called the container escape. And because of what we just described of, you know, what a container actually is, and, it, and it's the fact that it's sharing the same kernel, there's, you introduce the ability to gain access to that container in order to access the underlying host, right? So it's, um, like I said, it's an isolated set of processes, but if there, if, if there is some kind of entryway into the host, whether that be through, um, you know, a, a vulnerability in the kernel or, uh, you know, file permissions or, uh, you know, something that, you know, wasn't, uh, set up correctly in, in the, uh, kind of separ separation of concerns and in, in terms of, you know, access to the host from the container, then that becomes a huge, uh, additional vulnerability where with virtual machines, for example, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have that because, um, you, you have, you have a more isolated virtual machine being that there it's a, it's its own separate, uh, operating system and it's in its own more isolated and uh, unable to kind of escape into, you know, there's no escaping into a hypervisor or, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, being that the container resides on the host, there's a lot of uh, security concerns in, you know, gaining entry to the host and what that, what that means in terms of, uh, you know, you possibly being able to change attributes of that host to, really gain access in, 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 um, in whatever, uh, whatever you want to exploit to begin with, um, that host might, might have more, more, uh, ability to, uh, you, you may be able to install additional malware onto it, or you may be able to do additional things with the host that you wouldn't necessarily get to do with the container. 
And Kubernetes in general has been a little bit overkill for the types of projects that I've worked on. So I've never gotten my hands super dirty with it. So I'm making some assumptions here that may be completely wrong. Correct me if, if it is. But because Kubernetes is able to manage your fleet of containers, I'm going to go ahead and assume here that if there is a vulnerability in Kubernetes itself, depending on the severity of it, somebody could potentially even be able to just control your entire fleet of containers, right? And take over and, and send their own commands and modify configurations in, in those containers. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, exactly. So um, Kubernetes is nothing more than a REST API. And uh, with that, REST API is you know, a way of accessing the API through what is called a PKI or a public key infrastructure. And it's a lot like you, you know, uh, operate on the World Wide Web where you go to a website and let's say it's your bank, you log into your bank and, and you know, kind of um, authenticate against certain, um, auth you know, authorities or, um, you know, in, in the PKI perspective, you know, you, you really are comparing these key pairs, right, between the server and the client. And there's the certificate authority that kind of says that, yes, this server is, in fact, the server that it that you are trying to reach. You know, the certificate authority says, you know, this is this is my bank. This is um, the, the bank that I intended to get to, you know, and um, is kind of the, the, the traffic cop, if you will, in that in that sort of scenario. But in Kubernetes, it's it's much the same in that you have a series of client certificates and, and server certificates that are all you know checking these key pairs to authenticate against the the Kubernetes API. And there's a lot of uh, vulnerabilities in inside of that in terms of having the ability as a, an anonymous user to access the Kubernetes API or uh, you know, exposing certain things on Kubernetes, like the Kubernetes dashboard, and that having uh, that because it's exposed, um, that having a certain number of vulnerabilities associated with it, or maybe you didn't attach the appropriate roles to that to that pod, and so now it's a, it's a an entryway into your Kubernetes cluster, and then you have this thing called the etcd data store which contains the entire configuration for the cluster. So it's your, you know, how your cluster is set up, how your cluster is secured, how your, what, what is comprised of your, of your cluster. So what are the, what are the pods, deployments, replica sets, et cetera. And so this, this introduces a whole host of attack vectors, right? That you have to be aware of when you're trying to protect your, your uh, applications on your cluster. So if we've got somebody who's listening right now and they're not only interested in learning about containers, but they'd also like to learn more about Kubernetes and or Kubernetes security, maybe they're also starting to deploy Kubernetes in production and they'd want to make sure that they they handle all those use cases. How would you recommend that they learn that? I know before we even started recording, you had mentioned a company named KSOC, which stands for Kubernetes SOC. Is that a good area for them to go get more information about Kubernetes security? And uh, are there any other types of projects or, or learning resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, so a lot of um, companies that focus on Kubernetes security are primarily concerned with the security of the image itself. And that is an area of interest and is a major concern, being that you 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 want to implement the the correct security vectors in order to deploy 
uh, your application in a secure way. So I talked about container escape. There's also, you know, having a rootless container versus a container that that operates as root and and also allows that kind of entryway into the host. And so KSOC, what they what they've uh, what their differentiator is is not not just looking at the security of the image and make, make making sure that the image is hardened, as we say, but it it looks at some of those other factors such as the security of the API. What are the roles and role bindings associated with certain resources in Kubernetes? What are you know are the surface accounts that are mounted to pods, how are they how are they able to potentially allow somebody to to gain access to the API? And so KSOC is is looking at it from a different lens in terms of, you know, yes, you know, hardening your images is important, but also, you know, you have to make sure that your Kubernetes uh, infrastructure and, and your your cluster is secure first. You know, first and foremost, you have to build a good foundation in order to be able to deploy applications to it. And so what I what I like about that is it's it's you know, I don't know if anybody's heard of the uh, Kubernetes dashboard exploit that was um, in uh, one uh, I think it was one dot twelve of Kubernetes that uh, was through if you deployed the Kubernetes dashboard, which is a GUI basically for your Kubernetes cluster, um, that would gain anonymous access into with with the uh, with the default roles and role bindings uh, would would allow you anybody to gain access to the cluster and modify its components. So that was a a big thing in two thousand around two thousand eight, where Tesla actually got hacked. And through running things like security checks on the cluster itself, I think is important for not only companies like Tesla but also uh, companies that are looking to deploy Kubernetes in a secure way. Um, so that we don't have those major kind of account takeover situations. And uh, in addition to that, in addition to looking into KSOC, um, I also recommend uh, looking into the certified uh, Kubernetes security administrator exam. So it's called the CKS exam. It's put put on by the Linux Foundation. And they they will test your knowledge through a lot of a lot of different a lot of the aspects that we've discussed today actually you know in terms of you know how do you uh you know how do you secure a cluster how do you you know compare sha hashes how do you um you know recognize that the uh you know the security it, it, your cluster is security compliant using something like cube bench mm-hmm. um using something like app armor um it tests you on all the, your different knowledge in that aspect so i think it's um I'm a big believer in in certifications as kind of a a way to qualify your knowledge, and that's that's definitely a a good place to start. Awesome, thank you. I'm sure that will be super helpful. And if you have any questions, uh, right at the end here, I'll ask Chad how you can reach out to him. So you can always follow up, and, and if you have any other questions about learning resources or getting started with the certification or anything like that. But Chad, as we wrap up here, I like to do a quick fire round which are just really quick and short questions and answers. And so I'm going to start with the first one, which is what are some of your hobbies outside of work? So I'm I'm one of those um, tech people who really uh, don't spend a lot of time on my computer outside of working hours. <laughs> so I really enjoy hiking, biking, uh, running, 
and uh, just enjoying the outdoors. Um, very, very jealous of you, Christoph, being in Denver because you get to do a lot more of that than I do, especially this time of year. <laughs> I'm in Austin. And um, so, yeah, I like to get outdoors when I'm not in the office. I was going to say, everything you just mentioned sounds fantastic, apart from the running. I am just not a, a big <laughs> runner, so I can get down for everything else you mentioned, maybe just not that. <laughs> but um, next question yeah. is, in your opinion, what's one area that we're missing the mark in terms of just IT education in general? I, I think there is a, the, there's a lack of uh, applying certain knowledge to practical examples. And some of the things that we harped on a lot at Linux Academy, Christoph, was, you know, creating these hands-on labs and, you know, learning by doing. I'm still a firm believer in that, and I still kind of preach that to people. I think um, when you're learning anything, you first have to know how it's used in the real world or what's a practical use case, you know, before you start to you know, dive into, you know, all of the intricacies, you know, I, I always, when I create my courses, I always start with, I have this concept of starting with concrete and then, uh, and then following with abstract. So I start with a concrete, concrete example, a learn by doing example where we can go through, okay, how does this actually work? And then we can kind of reverse engineer it. And I'm a firm, firm believer in that just because it, it kind of solidifies your knowledge about mm-hmm. whatever you're learning. So it's, 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 it works for me. And I, I think it works for a lot of other people too. 100% could not agree more with you on that one. Now, if a listener wants to follow up, how can they connect and reach out? Yeah, you can, you can find me on Twitter. That's my main, uh, that's where I spend most of my, my time on social. Uh, so my Twitter handle is at Chad M as in Michael Kroll, Chad M Kroll all one word. And I also have this community that I'm starting called cube skills. You can go to cubeskills.com to check that out. And, uh, what I'm trying to create there is exactly what I just described, uh, a way of creating these kind of learn by doing environments and, and scenarios. And also, uh, you know, a community of others to share that with, you know, lear- learning is a lot more fun with friends, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, Chad, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. This is a topic that I've also just wanted to learn more about and never really got the chance to sit down and and spend more hours on Kubernetes and just messing around with that. So thank you for sharing your knowledge on that today. Really appreciate it. And like Chad said, make sure to reach out on him with his community and also on Twitter if you have any questions, but also just in general to say thank you. Thank you for sharing with us and thank you for sharing your time. So be sure to check out his courses, check out his book and check out his community. But thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.